Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. Ukraine just had one of its bloodiest weeks after a new round of fighting broke out that threatens to derail an already shaky ceasefire between the Ukrainian government and pro-Russian separatists. The government-held town of Avdivka in eastern Ukraine suffered massive amounts of artillery shelling, with an independent group noting that there were over 10,000 explosions in this week alone. All this comes at a time where temperatures are beyond freezing, leading to fears of an impending humanitarian disaster. The US ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, used her first official appearance at the UN Security Council to condemn Russian actions in Ukraine, while Russia has pointed the finger back at the Ukrainian government for sparking tensions in order to provoke a new US administration into action. So what's caused the recent flare-up? I think we don't know all of the facts, but certainly the the new political uncertainty, particularly in the U.S. since the uh, arrival of the new administration, seems to provide the background for the, the upsurge in fighting. This is Jeff Mankoff, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of our Russia-Eurasia program, as well as a co-host of the CSIS podcast Little Sister, Russian Roulette. I mean, you hear different things from the Russian sides and the Ukrainian sides, of course, but um, I think there's a recognition on both that a lot of the uh, the things that they took for granted for the last couple of years are no longer necessarily so secure. And so, um, at least for now, there's an opportunity to try and create facts on the ground. I mean, there's been a ceasefire of sorts in place for the past couple of years, um, since Minsk too. Yeah. So where did the sides stand now? What what do they stand to gain? What, what does the kind of pro-Russian side even right. have in terms of territory? Yeah, well, right. The, the ceasefire has been in place since early 2015. And I should put ceasefire in quotes because while there hasn't been um, a major offensive or, or shifts in, in the territorial distribution, uh, there's been you know quite a bit of, of shooting and shelling uh, across the line of contact by both sides. Um, the intensity of, of that shelling has increased dramatically in the couple of days, in the last couple of days. Um, as far as what the political goals are, you know, I think um, on the, the separatist slash Russian side, um, there is um, a recognition now that uh, the Ukrainian government's position is is weaker because of, of real questions about how much support they're going to get from the West, especially the United States. Uh, and so uh, increased military activity uh, is a way of, of putting pressure on them to make additional concessions um, in terms of either territorial distribution or in terms of, of actually implementing their piece of the, of the Minsk ceasefire agreement, which requires... Um, uh, adopting a law on special status and allowing uh, elections to take place in the rebel-held areas. On the Ukrainian side, you know, and I, Matt, I, even though the the separatists and the Russians say that you know the Ukrainians started this latest round of fighting, um, it seems that the. The, the Russian and the, and the separatist side is much better prepared and, and has had the initiative. So, you know, for the Ukrainians, I mean, I think they are trying to hold on to what they've got. Um, there may be some efforts to um, re uh, to, to get more secure um, positions, uh, just more defensible positions at a time when the when the front line has become increasingly fluid. Um, but um, the bulk of the of the the shelling and the attacks seem to be coming from from the other side, which to me seems to indicate that that's where the initiative for this is coming from. And uh, from the Ukrainian side, how stable is Ukrainian President Poroshenko's uh, leadership right now? What kind of pressure is he under? Well, I don't think there's an immediate 
threat to his rule. Uh, now that said, you know, Ukraine faces a lot of the same problems that it's faced for, I mean, for the last 25 years. Um, the economy is not doing particularly well. There have been some some significant reforms, but nevertheless, they're the kind of things that often uh, require short-term pain for long-term gain, and we're still in the, the short-term pain phase. Um, and so, you know, you have that coupled with frustration about the, the situation in the East, um, the perception that, you know, Ukraine's uh, Euro-Atlantic aspirations may uh, be waning simply because there's less uh, interest in that in the, on the part of the Europeans and the Americans. So th th there's plenty of pressure uh, that Poroshenko is facing, even leaving aside the, the, the offensive in the East. Um, but, you know, none of this right now seems to represent an, an immediate uh, uh, threat. Now, of course, you know, as we've seen in, in Ukraine and in this part of the world, more broadly, sometimes threats have a way of, of uh, emerging rather quickly. So, of course, it's worth keeping an eye on, especially if the fighting in the East gets worse. Um, but, you know, for now, I, I guess I would characterize it as a, as a lots of challenges, but not a crisis. Well, what do you think is, is Russia's strategic goal here? Because it seems almost low level now. It was big fanfare a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, but... Um, where do they gain? What's their points of leverage here? Yeah. Well, the biggest point of leverage is um, that they have a very large conventional military on the other side of the Russo-Ukrainian border that they have uh, inserted and withdrawn as, as needed to, to buck up the separatists. In, in the, the broader scheme of things, I think what the Russians are seeking is to check or slow uh, Ukraine's drift out of Russia's orbit and, and closer to the West. Um, which involves, um, you know, making sure that a, a government like Poroshenko's that staked itself on uh, Ukraine's integration with the West doesn't succeed, um, and using various tools at its disposal, including support for the separatists, uh, conventional military forces, but also economic leverage and various types of, of you know, information or hybrid or soft power. Um, to, to put pressure on, on Ukraine. In terms of the conflict itself, um, I think the Russian approach is to uh, get Ukraine to fulfill its commitments under the Minsk ceasefire agreement before Russia fulfills its commitments, which means uh, adopting this law on um, uh, special status, holding elections, which of course would happen in, in separatist ruled areas, which means that the Russians would have a uh, very strong ability to influence, if not completely determine, the outcome of the elections, uh, and then get essentially Russian proxies uh, into the Ukrainian parliament uh, from these areas who could act as a, a kind of break or check on uh, Ukrainian foreign policy, constitutional change, basically anything that Russia doesn't want to have happen. Uh, and only then uh, would, the, would the Russian side follow through on its Minsk commitments, which specifically with regard to turning over control of the, of the border between Russia and Ukraine to international monitors or to the, ultimately to the Ukrainian government. And where does Crimea stand in this? Is it kind of lost at this point? I know that Nikki Haley was speaking today in the UN uh, very forcefully saying that Crimea is part of, of Ukraine and, and, and should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for all intents and purposes, um, most Ukrainians have uh, ac accepted that there's not a, a near-term path 
to uh, reintegrating Crimea. Uh, now that said, the uh, the occupied status of Crimea does give Ukraine certain um, points of leverage with Russia, and I think they're going to continue uh, insisting on that. Uh, and I think the international community is going to continue insisting on that. There doesn't seem to be a real um, interest in, in acknowledging uh, this act of annexation, which of course would go against 70-some years of, of international law and international practice, at least in Europe. Um, you know, and I think the probably the best analogy is uh, Northern Cyprus, uh, which, after a separatist rebellion, occupied, not recognized. Um, but you know, the fact that it was occupied didn't remain a major impediment to the development of relations with with Turkey, whose military was occupying it. So I, I think uh, the Crimea issue can be finessed in a in a similar way over the longer term, which is to say. Um, no recognition, uh, no engagement, but at the same time, it doesn't. It's not at the top of the agenda in terms of, of relations with Russia. Um, the situation in the East is more complicated and I think more uh, explosive because uh, it's not stable. It's not. Um, it, it can't be sort of territorially walled off uh, in the same way and to a much greater extent than Crimea. The populations are mixed uh, and so there's not as much uh, sentiment locally in favor of, of affiliation with Russia, which is why I think the Russian offensive in, in 2014, 2015 kind of petered out. So th this one's going to be a, a much um, more challenging issue, not only for Russia and Ukraine, but for the, for the international community as well. Well, there's, there's a lot of different opinions uh, floating around about what uh, the U.S. and the new U.S. Uh, administration uh, wants to do with Russia and how it wants to work with Russia. Um, where do you see Ukraine fitting into that? Have you seen any signs that it'll be a, a different approach? Yeah, well, I, I think there are, are multiple voices within the administration right now, and you know, we've seen these multiple voices speaking out in public. Uh, so... It's hard to predict because I think we just don't know who, uh, which of these approaches is going to win out. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Ambassador Haley's remarks to the UN, where she was very critical uh, and blamed the Russian side for the the upsurge in fighting in in the Donbass. Um, now, apparently, the the White House spokesman um, did not want to even refer to the Minsk agreements at all in his. Uh, remarks about the fighting and there's been there's a, an associated press story this morning about how uh, the White House was trying to avoid uh, mentioning Russia to the extent possible as they were talking about the situation in the East. So I think we've definitely seen people uh, around Trump who uh, have made the argument that you need to have a better relationship with Russia at more or less whatever cost um, and Ukrainians and, and others who support not only Ukraine, but who also support, um, you know, the liberal international order, which Russia violated by uh, seizing Ukrainian territory and, and sending its forces into Ukraine, I think have reason to worry um, that there may be uh, a shift in the approach to Russia that uh, looks to, to sweep some of this under the carpet. The, the country of Russia itself, what's the what's the public opinion there? What's What do people feel about the Ukrainian issue? Is it something that um, can still be used as a means of drumming up kind of nationalistic support? Um, I think it, it, it's faded in salience since the, the height of the fighting, but uh, especially given the, the state control of the media, 
Um, and by media, I mean mainly television, which is how most people in Russia get their news. Um, I think it would be comparatively easy to to spin that up again should the, the need arise. Uh, Russia has a, a presidential election coming up in, in 2018 uh, when all indications are Putin will be reelected. But, uh, you know, if there are concerns about his popularity or his standing, I can certainly foresee a scenario in which uh, using the crisis in Ukraine as a way to whip up nationalist sentiment um, ahead of the election is, would be something that the, the Kremlin would try to do. And that was Jeff Meinkoff wrapping up. If you want to hear more on Russia policy, you can join Jeff and Alia Oliker on the All Things Russia podcast, Russian Roulette. Thanks again for joining me. And as always, if you have anything you'd like to say about the show, please get in touch by email at cquinn at csis.org or on Twitter. That's it from me. We'll be back with more next week.